Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Welcome to the Daily Jungle. We had a big, big Tuesday in the house, so let's get right to it. Kyle Schwarber reported spring training in the best shape of his life, and if you monsters hammer a guy for gaining a couple of LBs, you best believe I'm going to give him some credit for leaning out. He looks great. OKC big man Steve Adams has a new title behind his name, Autobiographer. But he also hit himself with some fire that you might not expect from a guy who penned a book. Illiteracy smack. Two-time Olympic gold medalist David Wise was absolutely incredible in telling his story. SI's Michael McCann broke down the legal issues hitting college basketball in the NFL. And, and Nebraska head basketball coach Tim Miles came in before the Huskers go to New York for the Big Ten tourney. Podcast Tuesday, Alvy, so let's get after it. Throw the name... Kyle Schwarber into Twitter. Speaking of Twitter, the way he showed up yesterday literally spawned a Twitter moment. It was that big of a deal. Twitter actually curated content for a Twitter moment based on his leaned out frame. That's how insane this guy looks. That's how different this guy looks. So now we hit the proverbial fork in the road. Because on every other talk show in America, the hosts are going to probably discuss what this means to the Cubs. But here on this show, I'm going to discuss what it means to the jungle first. We'll get to the baseball aspect. I'll get to the Cubs. But you see, this is a show that is consumed by lots of ghouls who cannot wait to call people fat when they blow up a pound or five, a pound or 30, a pound or 50. It's what you clones live for. You set your clock to it. It is your very oxygen. And every time some celeb looks like they might snap and recoil a belt, you would push an elderly lady in front of a bus to get to that little red button so you could smash the so-called fat alarm. You know the fat alarm. That blaring piece of audio where Mike Gundy, Romo, and Scotty Farrell drop fat blasts over a reoccurring siren. You know what that is? It's like porn to you clones. It's like crack on tin foil to you degenerates. It's like a capsule of Molly getting all you goons to roll face. And grind your teeth at the exact same time. However, it's all different now. It's all reversed. It's all inverted. It's all different because Kyle Schwarber has transported you to an alternate universe where down is up, where back is forward, where, most importantly, fat is skinny. So, what are you going to do with that now? Because the right thing to do would be to rush to Twitter and do the opposite of what you're accustomed to doing, namely, congratulate this guy on the work that he has done, the time that he has put in, and the weight that he has lost. And then come to me and beg me to play the fat alarm in reverse. See, now that would be the right thing to do. That would be the right thing to do, but when have you clones ever done the right thing? You see, this is the same audience who cracked a caller for wearing the hat of his recently deceased godfather during the Super Bowl. 
This same audience that cannot wait to call a new dad a bitch for crying on the radio. The same audience that went all in on Marie from Tennessee simply for being old. Not to mention all the morbid death jokes about Ron and Nicole. The Menendez's parents. Even, even, reprehensibly, the astronauts in the Challenge space shuttle. I can't remember that guy's name in Salt Lake City. Zach. Uh, Zach. or Zach or Daryl or whatever his name is. But the only spaceship he was calling from was the Challenger because his phone call exploded about 30 minutes. Not only was that not a good call, that might have been the worst call ever. Alvin, you should just delete that from your files. Listen, expecting y'all to line up and tell Kyle Schwarber that he looks great is a fool's errand. But that doesn't mean that I won't do it because this is still my talk show. And if you people are going to clown people for gaining an extra pound or two, then you best believe I'm going to give shine to a guy for dropping what looks like 20 or 30. This guy looks amazing. Schwartz, you look great, dude. Just don't expect my audience to echo or share those same sentiments. Not when they're still fawning over Dane Cook's latest beach photos. This dude looks absolutely amazing. So instead of giving you what you want, The fat alarm on somebody, I'm going to roll the fat alarm. And I'm not saying the guy was fat. A little portly, a little chunky, a little thick. I'm not saying the guy was fat because I never call anybody fat. Never have, never will. But I will tell you this. If there was an alarm for being fat, there should be a fat alarm in reverse. This guy earned it. That's where I'm different than you clones. I'm looking to accentuate the positive. I'm looking to give guys credit. I'm not looking to crack back. But that's just me. There's your alarm in reverse. For real. Give this guy some bleeping credit for real. See, I, you're here to crack on people. I'm here to give people credit. Tim Miles is my guest. Tim, it's great to have you on. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You got it, Tim. Great to talk to you. I was looking forward to it. Now, you beat Penn State on Sunday, so you close out your regular season and an undefeated season at home, meaning you're the only Big Ten team that was able to accomplish that. So let me start right there. How much pride do you take in the way your guys handle business at home in conference play this season? Well, they were great. The only game we lost all year was a last-second deal to Kansas who's like a one seed now, and, and they've really played well at home. And Pinnacle Bank Arena is a relatively new venue, and we oversell it most nights out. And so it's uh, built for basketball, not hockey. We love it. And uh, the place was really rocking this weekend when we could close out Penn State. We're talking to Tim Miles. So you've got your conference tournament starting tomorrow. First off, what's it mean to you and the conference to be playing that tournament at Madison Square Garden? Well, it, it means a lot. You know, we, we, when we added Maryland and Rutgers to the league uh, three years ago or whatever it was, we had to go out east just to introduce ourselves really to the East Coast. And, you know, we've done that. We've been in D.C. Uh, and we've been uh, – now we're going to New York City. I think that's good. But I think at the end of the day, most of our tournaments are always going to be in the heart of Big Ten country, Indianapolis and Chicago. But I think it's good for us to be out there, especially a venue like Madison Square Garden. We're talking to Tim Miles, head coach in Nebraska. It's going to be great to see you guys there. You know, you've won eight of your last nine to close out the year. So how different are you as a team over the last month as compared to earlier in the season? Yeah, a couple of things. One is we went to a smaller lineup, more mid-sized lineup, 
put in Isaiah Roby, who's almost a small forward last year at the center. Um, Isaac Copeland, who's a transfer from Georgetown, highly regarded recruit, had back surgery in the summer, and he's been playing great the last 12 games. He finally looks healthy and normal. And I think as that's gone on, we've really played well. We play those guys at our forward and center spots and then three guards, and we've been able to to, to play really uh, well defensively and then just good enough offense. I don't get in their way. I kind of let them do their thing, and, uh, uh, and you know, and, uh, and things have worked out well. We're talking to Tim Miles, especially with Isaac Copeland. I mean, that's really something. Let's not gloss over that. He had 17-12 and 12 in that win over Penn State, and he was a transfer, but he had back surgery in the summer. It's always hard to predict how somebody's going to bounce back from somebody like that. But when you see the work that he's put in and the way he's showing up nightly now, what kind of thoughts do you have about him? Well, yeah, you just keep your fingers crossed with back surgery. I mean, like, I won't even let, let him take out an ingrown toe, toenail on me, Jim. Right. Uh, but that kid, you know, knew he had to have the surgery, knew he needed to be corrected, and and really spent a lot of time, you know, you know rehabbing or prehabbing, what that, whatever they call it, before. And so he did a lot of muscle work before uh, he even had surgery. We had to delay the surgery so because he, he just wasn't strong enough in his core. And he did a lot of tedious work. I mean, you see the kid over there doing bridges, and, you know, and side bridges for like a half hour. And I'm like, kid, you know, did you never have abdominal muscles before? <laughs> What's going on? Right. And, and he's like, coach, I don't get it. But, you know, he's really uh, trained himself and done a lot of little tedious work to get himself in a position where he's – I mean, he started out the game the other night, Jim. We threw the ball top of the key on a pick and pop. He takes two dribbles and dunks over a 6'11 kid, and the place went bananas. It was really cool. Clones, you know I love my Casper mattress. So what more can I tell you about Casper that I have not already told you? The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper, Amazon, and Google, Casper is becoming the internet's favorite mattress. I own a Casper mattress, and I always will. I will never forget the first night that I slept on my Casper. And I have had an amazing night of sleep every single night since then. And right now, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. Try it out for 100 nights, and if you don't love Casper as much as I love mine, they will come and pick it up for free and give you a full refund. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting Casper.com and using the promo code JUNGLE at checkout. Once again, promo code JUNGLE at Casper.com to save $50 on select mattresses. Casper.com. Terms and conditions do apply. That's Casper. Now it's back to our daily jungle. We're talking Nebraska basketball. Head coach Tim Miles joining us. Now, Tim, you mentioned that loss to Kansas. You go back to December. They beat you by one with a three-pointer with just over 20 seconds left in the game. So much has happened since then, but is that a game that keeps you up at night at all? For example, if that shot does not go down and you win that game, we're probably not even debating whether or not you're a tournament team. Do you find yourself thinking about that game at all? Oh, well, Jim, just about every waking moment, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. Like, one, we should have switched the ball screen. Two, we should have followed um, um, uh, Abazuki on purpose like uh, Oklahoma did, just grab his jerseys, going out to set a ball screen. And three, I should have called timeout and set up a better uh, end game play. But uh, other than that, nah, don't <laughs> think about it much. <laughs> I got you. Tim Miles joining us. All right, Tim, let me ask you something. And 
It's a very serious issue because earlier this month, you beat Minnesota, and then you were getting on the bus, and you noticed that the team was fairly subdued. The story goes that one of your captains texted you and said that the team wanted to set up a meeting to talk about a video from a Nebraska student who is a white nationalist. What was your reaction when that entire thing came up? Well, my daughter had sent me the video of the young man uh, that we just mentioned uh, earlier uh, that day um, or or the night before. And, you know, um, I forwarded that to the people I thought that, you know, had it. Well, they were already on top of it. You know, I mean, the authorities knew, you know, what was going on. We're monitoring the situation. But, you know, when a guy comes out and says, you know, I hate Hispanics, I hate black people, um, you're taken aback a little bit. And certainly the guys worry about their own welfare and safety. And, you know, as a parent, uh, you know, the, the, your number one job is to provide security, right? And the same thing as a coach, when you don't, you know, and so all of a sudden it's a whole new, it's not in the handbook, Jim. Like they don't give this in coaching 301 or 102. You know, you're, you're on the fly, but the guys want to talk to you. They're subdued in a locker room after a big road win. And, um, you know, as they said, can we have a team meeting? I kind of put two and two together. Uh, and we went back and just talked. And they said, Coach, you know, you know so a lot of college teams had, had taken a, uh, you know, a stance on the national anthem, like Kaepernick, um, and wanted to say, hey, listen, we've got some problems in our neighborhoods, and we're going to, you know, we want to let people know during the national anthem. Well, our guys, I asked the guys, do you have any desire, uh, you know, a year and a half ago, any desire? No, they took a pass. Well, then this came out, and they said, we, we, we really feel like we need to stand up because we're mostly African-American on our team, and we, we really want to stand up against this. And really, it's not even just this one instance, but it is. But it's just the whole divisiveness that is going through that you see everywhere, politics, sports shows, everywhere. It's just this constant, you know, uh, derision and, and, you know, I'm against you, and it's just it, – it, it, it just – is that our society? Is that what we're about? So, you know, they want to talk about, hey, what, what can we stand for that really actually matters? And really, we, we had an off day, and then we had to take another day off just because we met with the team. We met with some school authorities. The guys on their own decided that they wanted to go with a T-shirt and a video that says, hate never wins. That was the, the slogan was their idea. The T-shirts were their idea. They wanted them black with white letters. Uh, they wanted to wear them for games. Uh, they wanted to wear all black to uh, the next couple home games. They did uh, because they were just really, sh- I think, you know, shaken to their core about this. You know, um, and, and at the end of the day, you know, I don't think they're trying to target any one person or anything, but they're saying like, hey, this is wrong. All of this stuff that's going on, this divisiveness is wrong. And we don't need to hate each other. Uh, there's a better way. And I'm proud of them because this has really been driven by them. I like the response very much, Tim. Tim Miles, head coach of Nebraska, joining us. Listen, before I let you go, and I appreciate your thoughts on that. Thanks for taking time. You know, I'll be honest. It's a testament to how well you're playing right now that we got to the end of the interview without my mentioning your bench mob. These guys are dropping <laughs> RKOs. They're doing bobsledding routines. They're holding up judges' scorecards with tens after big dunks. The list goes on and on and on. How did that first start, Tim? Well, it's interesting. That is interesting because um, – so I think it started on the year. We had like three walk-ons down there and then a kid that wasn't playing that was on scholarship who was a freshman. And, and I had a kid in the rotation, Jack McVeigh, and he was right on the borderline. He'd play, you know, four minutes one night, 14 the next. He had been a starter for me previously. Um, 
And then we have some new guys that we had in and a little more talent, a little more length and athleticism, and all of a sudden he falls out of the rotation. So now he's on the end of the bench, and he's not playing three, four, five games. And out of nowhere, I put him in and just played him like we were down 17 at Penn State, threw him in. I said, Jack, you know, double the post every time you get it. This is what we're going to do. He played great. And that's the last time he's played. So he goes back to the bench, you know, and, um, and, and, you know, the guys down there, the walk-ons are like, you know, God, here's Jack. He's used to be a starter. Now he's at the end of the bench with the rest of us. We got to, and they were celebrating him that night so much that they're like, Jack, you, you got to get in this with us. We're going to do this bench mob thing. And I think it was their way to make Jack feel better. And Jack McVay is a kid from Australia. I think his girlfriend plays basketball at St. Mary's. Uh, and he, like she said it best, only Jack could go from averaging 18 points a game against Indiana over, th- over two years to now being more popular at the end of the bench than the bench mob. <laughs> right. uh, and, uh, and so it's, th- those guys are awesome. I, I love it uh, when they you know, do the, like you say, the suplex from the top rope or whatever it might be. The one I liked is when the kid either dies or passes out on a dunk and the kid's calling 911 on his hand <laughs> and the two stiffs just carry him out like he's a dead body. Um, that's a fun one too, but if fans haven't seen it, just look at the Nebraska bench mob. It'll be worth your time. All right, some NBA for you, and then we go back to the phones. OKC big man, Steven Adams, is an absolute beauty. I love this guy. Most people do love this guy. In fact, I'd go as far as to call him a national treasure, but I'm not going to get into a battle with New Zealand. Not if I don't have to. But trust me, I wish we could claim this dude as one of our own. For now, let me just call him one of the best imports in the association because he is that. Now, forget for a moment that he's having a career year in points, boards, and field goal percentage. Forget for a moment that he is the perfect glass cleaner for Russ, Mello, and PG. Forget for a moment that he got more all-star votes than Blake Griffin did this season. Forget all of that for a moment. Because as good as this guy is on the court, I think he might be even better off of it. This is a dude... I mean, I don't even know where to start with this guy. This is a dude who just answered yes to a tweet from a female fan inviting him to prom, which is awesome, right? Not only acknowledged it, but said yes. Of course, he acknowledged it three years after she asked. This is also a dude who told ESPN in a recent interview that a skill that he wants to master is thinking. Quote, Thinking is quite hard, to be honest, just about stuff in general, you know? So I want to master that skill, end quote. And (laughs) not only that, this is a dude who seems to have forgotten that he has an autobiography coming out this summer because yesterday at practice, OKC beat writer Fred Katz asked him, quote, he asked him point blank, do you have an autobiography coming out? To which Adams replied, and I quote, I don't know. Is that what you heard? Steven, do you have an autobiography coming out? I don't know. Is that what you heard? I don't know. I don't know. Is that what you heard? Pretty amazing. I mean, one thing to forget where you put your wallet. One thing to not remember an appointment. Quite another to forget that you have a book coming out about yourself that you yourself wrote. Oh, yeah, that book. Oh, yeah, I did write a book, didn't I? He forgot that he wrote a book. Or did he? 
It wasn't until Fred Katz name-dropped the Ghost Rider that this whole autobiography thing came rushing back to Steve. Adeline Chapman? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Se- seems like you've forgotten about the process. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's about myself. It's, uh, it's pretty much it, mate. <laughs> just a book about myself. What inspired you to put together a book? I don't know. I don't know, I just wanted to do one on myself, so... I didn't actually want to do it. But someone told me it should be a good idea and they'll be interested, so I was like, okay. This guy's amazing. All right, so now now he remembers the book. He remembers the book, but he doesn't remember why he wanted to write the book. Quote, what inspired you to put together a book? Quote, I don't know. The whole thing's pretty awesome. Right up until when Katz asks him if he's ever written before. Let me play this for you, and then I'll translate it if you can't make out what he's saying in a thick New Zealand accent over bouncing basketballs. But this is his response to, have you ever written before? Have you, have you written before? No, I didn't write it. I have ghostwriter at Madeline Chip. I can barely read, mate. <laughs> I think I'm going to write a book. Jesus. <laughs> Do you hear what he said? Have you ever written before? His response to, have you ever written before? Quote, no. I didn't write it. I got a ghostwriter named Madeline Chapman. I can barely read, mate. I can't write a book. Jesus. Have you have you written before? No, I didn't write it. I got a ghostwriter named Madeline Chapman. I can barely read, mate. <laughs> I'm going to write a book. Jesus. That's an all-time quote right there. I can barely read, mate. I can't write a book. Jesus. It's an amazing quote. An amazing quote, especially given the fact that this guy's got an autobiography, which is about to drop. You know, an autobiography, self-written. You wrote about yourself. You wrote about your life. That quote again. That quote again. Have you, have you written before? No, I didn't write it. I got a ghostwriter at Madeline Chip. I can barely read, mate. <laughs> I think I'm going to write a book. Jesus. Self-inflicted illiteracy smack. Incredible. Good luck ever cracking this dude for not being able to read when he just straight owned it to the world. I love this guy. I can barely read, mate. I can't write a book. I'm pretty sure the publisher didn't appreciate that quote as much as the rest of us did. Because at this point, how can you call it an autobiography anymore? A book written about somebody by somebody else is called, wait for it, a biography, not an autobiography. It seems like the ghostwriter here is really just the Wait for it now. The writer. Not the ghost writer. The writer. That's right. So maybe Steve Adams just recategorized his book on accident, but who cares? I'll tell you this. There's not a piece of nonfiction that I am more hyped about than the Steve Adams story this summer. A seven-footer who can't read, his words, not mine, and already has enough stories for a book at the age of 24. Sign me up for the Amazon Prime pre-order. Steve, never, ever change. Never, ever change. Well, I mean, other than learning how to read and write. Other than that, never, ever change. Don't change. Michael McCann. Michael, great to have you back. How are you? I'm doing great, Jim, and thanks for having me back. Mike, always good to have you on. There's lots to talk about today. Why don't we start first, though, with what's going on in college basketball. If you could go back a little bit, Michael, can you reset the whole situation? Why is the FBI involved in this matter in the first place? Sure. So within the last few years, the FBI launched an investigation into corruption in college basketball, and specifically whether or not money was being paid to recruits, whether it's money paid by coaches in college, whether it's money paid by apparel companies, 
whether NBA agents are getting money or, or paying money as well. It's sort of this network of payments involving college basketball that we're all sort of familiar with, right, that, that recruits might be getting money. And the FBI and Justice Department have theorized that this is more than just NCAA violations, that it's actually also, according to the government at least, crimes, and specifically crimes of mail fraud, using the Postal Service to bribe, wire fraud, using the wires to do so. Now, the defendant's attorneys have said that we're sort of misconstruing what fraud means and what briberies are, that we're taking NCAA rules and turning them into crimes, but that's sort of a separate issue. So fast forward to the last, fast forward to last fall, a number of people were charged, as we know, including some prominent assistant coaches and sneaker executives. Within the last week, there were leaks, leaks to members of the media about what the FBI has found. And the FBI leaks have, and I don't think they're from the FBI, I think they're from, if I had to guess, uh, attorneys for some of the defendants. And the leaks have shown that a number of, of uh, players, recruits, and, and some coaches are implicated in what the government believes are, are bribes. We're talking to Michael McCann, a Sports Illustrated legal analyst. So, Michael, you just touched on this, but in terms of Arizona head coach Sean Miller, I mean, could he also be facing criminal charges, or is it just a matter of employment and his contract with Arizona? In other words, if in fact he did, is paying a recruit a criminal act or merely a violation of NCAA rules? Well, the government seems to think it's it's a crime. I, I mean, I don't there's no precedent for that as far as I know. So this is sort of an open-ended question that it's a criminal act. And yeah, he would fit Jim within the parameters that the government has outlined as criminal behavior in terms of the original charges last fall, that if he arranged for payment to a recruit, then that would presumably be a part of the, the bribe. And if he's using the postal service to help orchestrate, or if he's using a wire transfer you know, we don't know if the bribe actually happened. So if this was just a discussion that didn't materialize, then it wouldn't have been a criminal act. It, it would still be an NCAA violation, but not a criminal act. But if, in fact, he orchestrated a bribe or under-the-table payment, whatever you want to call it, and it happened, then it would fall within the definition that the government has articulated as a crime. We're talking to Michael McCann. All right, so, Michael, assuming that, and again, we don't know if it's a crime or not, but where does that leave the players and their families if, in fact, players and or their families receive money from an agent or a runner, are they in legal jeopardy as a result? They could be, Jim. They could be considered part of the crime. They would have partaken in a criminal act as the recipients of a bribe, and at least in theory, the government could charge them with crimes. It doesn't seem like the government's going in that direction, but it's possible that the government could threaten it. And more importantly, it means they're going to be part of any further developments in the case. So if a player received one of these payments, at a minimum, he's looking at being a witness, should all of this go to trial. So that, as a starting point, I imagine, would be something that the player wouldn't want, could damage his brand, it could be uh, you know, reputationally harmful. So that would be a minimum, and it could get worse than that if the government decided, look, we have to amp up the pressure. We've got to get some more info. I mean, look at who they charged last fall, Jim. They charged assistant coaches. I have to think they charged the lower people in hopes that the, those charged will eventually start talking because they'll cut deals and to implicate the head coach or the athletic director or the university president. 
so uh, there are other fish in the sea that the government will probably go after. We're talking to legal analyst Michael McCann. He works with Sports Illustrated, among many other things. So, Michael, what about the NCAA? What role does the NCAA play in all of this? In other words, is the NCAA at all responsible from a legal standpoint for anything that has taken place, allegedly? Yeah, it's a great a great question. I mean, the NCAA sort of is in the middle of the story, and yet we can't see it. And it's because the NCAA obviously has these rules that that form the basis of amateurism. I don't think directly the NCAA can get in trouble in terms of criminal law because their argument would be they're, they're a private association that has created rules that its members are obligated to follow. But that could it could lead the government to ask whether these rules are adequately enforced, and it's possible that NCAA officials could be witnesses should these criminal cases go to trial. So I think it's very possible they could get implicated as witnesses. As criminal defendants, though, I'm skeptical just because of the way the case is structured, unless they're on the inside of these deals, which I think is very unlikely. But I think it brings up the larger question of whether the NCAA should just should, should change its rules. I mean, these amateurism rules are, I think a lot of people would say, antiquated and not particularly effective. All right, so, Michael, to that point, you're the co-author of Court Justice with Ed O'Bannon, so you're intimately familiar with the way the NCAA approaches matters of, quote, amateurism. So in your opinion, what kind of action, if any, could you see them taking as a result of all of this? I think the NCAA, I mean, so they could go in two directions. One is they just levy out enormous punishments to however many coaches are implicated in this. And we've only seen a sliver, right? Sean Miller is, is, is sort of has a target on his back right now. It wouldn't surprise me as other leaks come up that other people, other big names even, are implicated. So we've only seen a, a tiny window into a larger room. It could turn out that a lot of big people are implicated in this story. Maybe the NCAA decides we're going to levy out astronomical punishments. Uh, coaches are suspended for years. Programs are, are given the death penalty. I don't think they're going to do that. I mean, look at all the money that's being made. I'm very skeptical, but that's one possibility. The other, Jim, is that you know, maybe the NCAA revisits these rules. I, you know, should a player be able to sign an endorsement deal while he's in college? Is that how would that really undermine college sports? Would somebody not watch a game because the star player has struck an endorsement deal with some company? I, I don't think most fans would be turned off. I mean, I'm just speaking for myself here, but I think there are practical, sort of small things the NCAA can do that would level the playing field. Michael, I agree wholeheartedly. We still watch the Olympics, right? I mean, they've got the Olympic yeah. model, and they get those deals. We're not not watching the Olympics because of endorsement deals, so I think that wouldn't impact it at all. In fact, I think they really have to. Before you go, let me ask you this. One thought about the NFL. The situation, Michael, with Jerry Jones and Roger Goodell, the initial report was that the commissioner was fining Jones for conduct detrimental, but now it appears that the league is simply looking to reclaim legal fees. Exactly what is going on here, and what's your reaction? Yeah, it sounds like the league is arguing that Jerry Jones caused the league to incur $2 million of legal fees. And there is a provision in the league constitution that states in so many words, if a team commences a legal action or finances a legal action against the league or the commissioner or, or other teams, the league can try to recoup legal fees. The problem for the league here is that Jerry Jones never started a lawsuit. He did hire David Boyes, a very prominent attorney, but there was no filing of a lawsuit. And as far as I know, there was no demand letter from Jerry Jones saying, Roger Goodell, you, you should quit or I'm going to sue. I, I think that that was the tenor of maybe some remarks, but there was never a formal demand letter. So I don't actually know that the test was met. And, and I have a feeling if the NFL pushes this 
and says to Jerry Jones, you have to pay us $2 million, I could see him going to court over it because I, I don't know if the, the threshold was met. And I think it also raises the question, why is the league even doing this? You know, Roger Goodell won. He got his big extension. Is this some kind of payback to Jones? You have to think maybe that's not the best approach. Yeah, I mean, Michael, what's going on here? What's to say about the nature of the relationship between Jones and Goodell and Jones and the other owners? Yeah, it, it, to me, it suggests that Jones is on maybe on the outs with a number of influential owners, or Goodell wouldn't have done this, right? That I'm guessing that this was leaked uh, to, to sort of as a trial balloon to see how people react to it. Uh, and I'm sure Jones is monitoring to see who comes to his defense in these days ahead, because obviously he's been such an influential member of the owners. I mean, along with Robert Kraft and a couple of others, it's hard to think of a more influential owner. If if Goodell is sort of doing a trial balloon to see who rallies around Jones and who stays silent, it could be pretty revealing. David Wise is my guest. David, it's great to have you on. How are you? I'm awesome, man. How are you doing? Good, bud. I'm great. Thanks for joining us. Good. You know what? Yeah, thanks for having me. You know it. You know, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but first, let me start in South Korea and the start of your final run before we talk about your whole journey. You'd wiped out in each of your first two runs because of an issue with the bindings on your skis. So what was going through your mind after the first two runs? Oh, man. It it was certainly the most intense day of competition of my life. Um, My first run was kind of shaping up to be probably the best run of my life. I mean, I was, I was landing, I was doing a really hard run, landing the tricks exactly how and where I wanted to land them. And I just had a ski come off and, um, in half fight that, that does tend to happen. Um, you know, we're, we're coming down from real high in the air on edge on an icy wall and, and bindings aren't really made for those kinds of tolerances. So it definitely happens, but to have it happen on two different pairs of skis in two different runs was really, uh, it was, it was frustrating for me, but it was just really kind of ironic just how that all worked out. Cause I mean, I've, I've spent my entire season, my entire career kind of fine tuning all those issues and, um, you know, trying not to have equipment issues on game day is, is definitely one of the major parts of my job. So I think, I think everybody was just as surprised as I was that I was having those issues. Like really, come on, Dave, it's the Olympic games. You didn't like, you know, tune your skis last night or something. <laughs> but it was it was just something totally outside my control. Um, and so I had to just let those things go. You know, I had to just be like, honestly, I don't have any control of the, over those issues that I've had. I, I can't go back and, and take those runs and do them again. So um, I still have one more chance. That's the best part of a three-run format. And I still had something that I wanted to prove. I still had something that I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to do that run. And, um, you know... For one thing, my ski tech and I crank my bindings down as far as they can go, which is certainly not safe. But uh, when it's the Olympics, sometimes it's time to crank them all the way down and let them ride. So I knew my skis weren't going to come off unless my feet came off. So um, I just dropped in and let it ride, and, and it all worked out. I, I still am in almost a state of disbelief that all of that worked out. David Wise joining us is so amazing. You're right. I mean, you crank them up as high or as low as they can go. That's not something you're looking to do. But then you drop in, you land double corks in all four directions. I mean, given the moment, given the pressure, it was an absolutely legendary run. When you finished it, and you just touched on this, you're still kind of in shock of it. When it went down and it was over, what kind of emotions run through you? What did you feel? Oh, man, I was, it, was, it was a sense of elation and a, kind of coupled with a sense of just immense relief, you know. 
the last thing I wanted to do was work four years for this run and do everything that happened, uh, you know, all of the challenges, making the Olympic team and everything, then making finals, and then have it come down to me not landing my run. You know, if anything, I wanted to land my run and put it in the judges' hands and say, there we go, that's, that's my job's done, now you guys do yours. And, uh, oh, man, I, I was like, I, you know, I think that half-pipe skiing is, is potentially one of the mo- more intense forms of, of competition in free skiing. It's so in your face. It's so fast. And, um, you know, there, there's, there's no way you can go, you can finish a really good run and not just get excited. So I came, I skied up, I skied actually right up to the judges. I was staring them in the eyeballs when I said this and I was just like, that is game over. <laughs> and, uh, I said it a couple of times. I was just like, man, I, I, I totally freaked out. I was so, so excited. And I wasn't trying to put my competitors down and say, Oh, that's game over. Like I, I beat you guys. It was more of like, that's what I came here to do. Whether the judges like it or not, I have like, it's game over for me. And I was just so excited, man. Yeah. You weren't looking to show anybody up. You were celebrating in the moment. You were showing some emotion. That's what we want to see from athletes. You know, David, it's amazing. It is amazing what you've endured and what you've gone through and what your family's gone through. You and I spoke after you won gold four years ago, but you and your wife, Alexandra and your entire family have been through an immense amount since then. As an example, in 2015, your sister Christy was paddle boarding and she was hit by a boat, which then fled the scene. You received word by text from Jessica, her twin, and the word was she might lose her leg or possibly even pass away. I can't even begin to imagine what was it like to receive a text like that? Yeah, and I I really think, you know, it wasn't wasn't in form of text just because my sister, my other sister Jess was in such... She was so in the heat of the moment. She couldn't. She couldn't take the time to call everybody. So she sent out a group text like, sure. "Hey, everybody, pray for Christy right now. Like something intense has happened. She might, you know, she's losing a lot of blood. She it looks like she's going to pull through, but she might lose her leg. Don't really know. I will update you. And you know, it, it wasn't the first time we've gone through things as a family. So I think that my immediate reaction was just to, to get down on my knees and and start talking to the guy upstairs and just ha- asking him to pull my sister through. Cause um, you know, when, when you're in a, a powerless situation like, like that, that's almost the only thing you can do. And so I was just praying for, her and my family, my wife started praying for, her and, and um, it's really kind of interesting how you go from a sense of um, just for, for the first emotion was relief that she was alive uh and then but then at the same time you're kind of mourning along with her because she lost her leg and now she's now she her life is forever changed in one moment so um you know that was definitely probably the hardest thing that i've had somebody that close to me go through and you know trying to help her get through that all those that process of um of all all the emotions you know wow yeah i am glad to be alive but also i love sports and i don't i can't do all the sports that i used to do and everything is difficult now. Like my, my sister doesn't get to have a casual day where she just lounges around the house because everything is challenging. Everything has to do with crutches or a prosthetic or something. So um, just kind of being there for her to remind her, hey, we're glad you're around. We're glad you're still here because uh, in some senses, and I've told her this too, in some senses it would have been easier for her to, to pass out, pass away in the water because uh, then the struggle would have been over, you know, and she could have been up 
up there high fiving Jesus and hanging out uh, with my grandparents. But um, that wasn't the way that God wrote the story. He he wanted her to stick around. He, he still has something for her to do. So I, I've just been kind of in a constant state of reminding her, hey, I'm glad you're here. I know it's a, tr- a struggle. I know you can't ski as easily as you used to. I know that running is really difficult and challenging. But I'm so glad you're here. And, and so that's kind of my job is just to remind her how much I appreciate having her around still you know, as her little brother. Yeah, David, your family's amazing. I, w- I wish we had more time because there are so many other things I want to talk to you about. But for those who don't know, there's so much more to Christy's story than even that because she's an Air Force captain and she returned to flying duty, becoming the first female amputee to accomplish that. So, I mean, I know you've stood by her side and you've helped her through it. But what have you learned from her about toughness and tenacity? Yeah, she she is the definition of toughness and tenacity. My sister is absolutely the poster child for uh, not letting your situation dictate who you're going to be. You know, she she just said, I I don't care if it's never been done before. I don't care if uh, I don't care if you believe I can do it or not. I am going to absolutely do everything I can to get back to flying. And um, so that was her main goal right from the start. And I think that that that's what gave her sort of something to fight, you know, especially she's a warrior. She's just in the same way that I'm constantly trying to uh, pick out new things that I can learn, new challenges, new tricks that I want to do in the half life. She's always looking for something to challenge her. And I think that, that that dream, that desire to fly again was one of the things that kept her going in those, in those early months is she's like, no matter what, I have to keep fighting because I'm going to be, I want to fly again. And um, so if anything that taught me, First of all, I've learned from my sister that it can always be worse. You know, you, the, I've, I've been through some really tough situations myself over the last couple of years. I've had a, quite a few injuries and things like that, but it can always be worse. There's always something to be that you should be willing to be grateful for. And so, you know, she's definitely shown that to me. And, and um, I'll never complain again after, after what my sister has been through. You know, I, I just am, I'm living my life now in a perpetual state of just thankfulness because my my sister's been through so much and and uh it just it changes your whole perspective david wise my guest gold medalist in fact i finally say this not only a perpetual state of thankfulness you said something recently that really resonated with me is it not a perpetual state of joy for instance quote we can choose joy no matter what's happening to us in our lives joy is a state of mind it's not a product of your circumstances I mean, again, David, we haven't even gotten into all the other trials and tribulations that you and your family and your son went through. Can we choose joy? Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, I, I think that we have a societal uh, construct, flawed construct in our society that uh, says you can only be happy when everything is going your way or when you have enough things. It's kind of an if-then philosophy, right? It's like, if I get that house that I want, then I can be happy. If I have a hot enough wife, then I can be happy. If I have that car that I want to drive, then I can be happy. But the reality is if you're not happy before you have those things, you're not going to be happy afterwards. And so, yeah, my, my wife, you know, my wife lost her dad. My son almost died. Um, I, have, I went through some major injuries and concussions and had more than half of my sponsors drop me. Uh, it's been a really crazy couple years, but I, I really, truly can say that I'm thankful for those years because they changed my, the way that I looked at life. They changed the way that I approached things, and I realized that I could be joyful even in those difficult situations. And because I had joy in those difficult situations, 
now, uh, now when things are going well and I just won the Olympics, uh, I'm not defined by that. I'm not, I'm not happy because I won the Olympics. I get to celebrate winning the Olympics with the people who made me happy in the first place. So, my man, what's next? I mean, you're still a young guy and you're not defined by this. Do you keep grinding this thing out or are you ready for the next challenge? Uh, I'm always, I'm always ready for a new challenge. Certainly I'm going to keep skiing. I'm, I'm having so much fun doing this right now. Uh, and if you had asked me maybe two years ago, I might have said, oh, you know, I think Pyeongchang's going to be my last Olympics. Uh, but it's funny how things can change in that amount of time because um, I was younger then, but I, but in my heart I feel younger now because I, because of the things that I've gone through and seeing my sister get through that struggle and um, going through so much with my wife has made me have a major appreciation for, for having the coolest job in the world. So certainly I'm going to keep it going for another four years, try to do another Olympics. Um, I'm also going to be competing in archery uh, in the summers. I'm, I'm going to try to do the summer winter thing, have a, have a summer sport to compete in and, uh, and a winter sport. So uh, there's certainly always going to be new adventures. I also just, uh, just this, this, this coming week, actually, uh, or mid-March, I'm going to be um, releasing my first book. So I wrote a children's book that's coming out in, in the middle of March. So uh, always new adventures in the Wise household. My man, you're killing it. You're absolutely amazing. A two-time Olympic gold medalist, a four-time X Game gold medalist. You want to look for that book. What is the name of the book, and where do we look for it? Uh, yeah, it's called Very Bear and the Butterfly, and it's a fable about about my story and how um, meeting my wife kind of changed my perspective, changed the way that I looked at life and, and made me realize. Actually, it's a lot about what we've been talking about. I realized I could choose joy. Uh, even when my circumstances weren't amazing. So um, it's a children's fable kind of based around that, that concept, and you can find it on my website, mrdavidwise.com. You can also uh, check it out on Amazon, uh, and the publisher's website is childrenleadingchildren.com. There it is. Podcast Tuesday, if you're listening right here, there is a good chance Ep 26 of the Jim Rohn Podcast is waiting for you with the Sklar Brothers. Check you out tomorrow. See you then. How to show up with Coca-Cola Energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.